Okay. All right. Good morning, everybody. Let's, let's begin with prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again, we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you sent your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross. Mercifully grant that we may follow the example of his great humility and patience and be made partakers of his resurrection. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Again we pray. O oh, you from whom to be turned is to fall, to whom to be turned is to rise, and in whom to stand is to abide forever, grant us in all our duties your help, in all our perplexities your guidance, in all our dangers your protection, and in all our sorrows your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, I added in the, church, the prayer from the fathers for this week just because I really like that prayer a lot from St. Augustine. Uh, all right, let's take a look at the verse for the week. This is up on the board. You're just going to have to bear with me because I forgot to get new markers, so all of the notes are going to be in black. Uh, so it's not a comment on the quality of the verse. Uh, this is from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Let's speak this together. Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Okay, first of all, there's an invitation. Come now is, uh, it's an imperative, but it's not bossing you around. It's not the Lord saying, hey, get over here and sit down. It's the Lord saying, hey, you get to come here. Let's, let's sit down together and do what? Reason together. This can maybe be confusing because you don't stop and think that the Lord says, hey, why don't you and I sit down and have a nice discussion? Let's reason together. But what this means is sort of a forensic sense that, that it's like in a courtroom. Come, let us reason together. You are the accused and I am the judge. And how are you going to plead? Uh, so here, because you are allowed to reason together, you have this invitation. You also have uh, your Lord who will intercede for you. Come and reason together. It's like the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. What does this mean? Well, it's an invitation. Call upon God as dear children ask their dear Father. You can reason with God and you can tell God, don't accuse me. I've been acquitted. How do you know it? Because though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Here's the other thing to know. Scarlet, uh, red like crimson, okay? This goes, those go together. White as snow and as wool. There's the juxtaposition. Now, what is Red, what is crimson? What is scarlet? Blood. Yes, it's blood. What do you have? You have blood guiltiness. You are like Cain. 
The blood of your brother cries out. It is upon you. That is your blood guiltiness. And white and wool, what does this remind you of? Lamb. Lamb, yeah, sheep language. Sheep language is always important because you are sheep. And you are the Lord's sheep, which is the important thing. So, the blood guiltiness, though your sins are like scarlet, though they are red like crimson, they will be made as white as wool. You are the lamb that has been made pure. And the paradox here is that you are a lamb with blood guiltiness who is made pure in the blood of the lamb. Jesus uh, the Revelation says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So though you have blood guiltiness, it is blood that will make you white as snow. And this is the promise of the Lord. So come now and reason together. You can go to your heavenly Father. You can reason with Him and say, yes, though my sins are red, uh, and though they are scarlet, I have a Lord and Savior who has died for me and atoned for me. I am acquitted. And the judge says, yes, you are acquitted. Good work. We have reasoned together. This is your salvation. Let's speak this again. Come now and let us together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, Okay, let's take a look at the Catechism for the week. This is part three of the Office of the Keys. Where is this written that Christ has given us the Office of the Keys? This, this is, is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. The Lord Jesus Christ breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. Okay, here are the things I want you to take note about this. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples. It, uh, there are these old BBC radio dramatizations of the Chronicles of Narnia with David Suchet as Aslan. They're great. But one of the things about those, uh, Aslan is, of course, a picture of Christ, and he breathes on the children. And in this recording, you're listening to it, and you hear him go... And then he starts to talk. But what I want you to understand about this is that there is no separation between the words and said and Jesus breathed on his disciples. How is it that you speak? You have to have air to speak. If you have no air, you can't speak. So your words come out by virtue of the breath that you have. So when Jesus breathes on his disciples, it's the breath of the Spirit that is coming forth in the Word. You can't ever separate anything from the Word. That's central. And it's important here because Christ himself is the Word. The Word speaks words that are transmitted by the breath that is the Spirit. The triune God always works together. Whose words are they? They're the Father's words, spoken by the Word, who is the Son of God, transmitted by the Holy Spirit. It's always triune. They're never separate. Okay? So, that's the one thing. Now, uh, who, uh, upon whom does he breathe? To whom does he speak? 
his disciples. He breathes upon his disciples, the twelve who are to become the apostles. And to these, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. Now, this is the office of the keys. It is that unique authority given to the church who, uh, and I, we talked about this last week, who uh, wields the power of the keys. It is in the office of the ministry. It's given to the 12 apostles. It is given to the pastors of the church, through the church, by the Holy Spirit. So, uh, this is the last thing. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven, and if you do not, they are not. The you there doesn't mean that all of a sudden I, as a man, uh, can put on fancy clothes and have the power of God. That's not how it works. It is the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. It is not a power that is possessed by a man, but it is in the name and in the stead of God, in the stead of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. It is in the stead of my Lord, it is by his authority, by the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, okay, questions about any of this? Okay, the children, I think you are gonna be in the sanctuary first, so go that way, because you're gonna practice the procession for today. Okay, I'm just gonna say this. If you haven't noticed, my voice, which was getting better, is now going down again. And this is the funny thing about this. Uh, it, I was fine all week until yesterday morning. Yesterday morning, I had a baptism uh, that we did here at church. And uh, it was right before the baptism when my voice started going. And let me tell you, uh, I, I wholly believe that this is the work of the devil trying to silence the service of the Lord. And I'm being serious. I, knew, I know a pastor, and he said, anytime I do a baptism, I always either hold the book or have somebody there holding the book, and I read the words from the book. I don't try and use my memory, because the devil will stop you from remembering the words of the baptism so that you... He'll, he's going to try and do everything he can to stop you from performing a baptism. Uh, so I believe it now because uh, I was gung-ho all week and then Saturday morning I woke up and tried to talk and it was And I said, ooh. <laughs> but don't worry, lemon juice gets rid of the devil. So uh, there we go. Uh, I have a quick comment for you. I got a phone call this week from somebody from out of state who was listening to our podcast. So in case you think that people aren't listening, they are. And, uh, and it's, it's getting spread around. They had uh, two comments. I want to share with you the two comments. Because uh, I'm, really, I'm very proud of the first one. And that is, um, they, they were listening through the, the episodes, and they got to the one where I was gone, and Pastor Dragomuller was filling in. And he asked the kids, uh, what do we do with water? And they all, you could hear him on the recording, they all answer in unison, baptism! 
And this person called me up and they said, my goodness, your kids, you ask them one question about water and they're already in with baptism. It's so great. And I couldn't believe it. I went and I listened to it myself and I said, boy, oh boy, I am so proud of these kids. They know what's going on. And, and I, you know, again, I know I say this a lot, but you, you can never underestimate your kids because they're always learning. They're always watching. They're always listening. And they, they know this stuff. And I am so proud uh, now the other comment was, hey, you know, uh, <laughs> you pray before Bible class, and I hear you say amen, but I really don't hear anybody else say amen. <laughs> so uh, buck up now, uh, people. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, anyway, now it's time to get down to business. So we're on station 10. It was the Daughters of Jerusalem last week. This week, Jesus is stripped of his garments. So let's just look at that. Uh, that'll be Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew 27, 33 to 36. Okay, do you, uh, what translation is that? Oh, can you read 35 again? Now I'm just curious. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Ah, okay, there's a piece missing. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This might be, like with the uh, Lord's Prayer incident, uh, an, ish, uh, an instance where different manuscripts have different bits. Uh, but I like the little bit about the prophets, because that Matthew's all about that. Because who is Matthew writing for? The Jews. Matthew's writing for the Jews. If you want to look at any of the four Gospels and pick one of them that's going to serve as a catechism, it's the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is a catechism. <clears throat> um, and it's, that's one reason why it's such a great Gospel. I mean, they're all great. They all, they all have their, their unique qualities that make them great. And one of Matthew's is that it's a catechism. It's a catechism for the Jews, so that they can see, hey, wait a second, there's this Jesus guy, we want to know about him, what's his deal? And Matthew says, oh, let me tell you about him, okay? So Matthew does a lot with the Old Testament prophecies, and the reason he does that is to show you, here's why Jesus says the things he says, and here's why he does the things that he does. Here's why these things happen to Jesus, because he is the Christ, and he is the one who is fulfilling all of these Old Testament uh, prophecies. He is the one who is to come. Remember, the, uh, 
you know, the people, the scribes and elders and Pharisees, they know the, they know the words of the prophets. Uh, so when they come to Jesus and they try to match wits with him and they're asking him questions about the Old Testament, they end up sort of looking stupid, but they aren't really. They, they know their stuff and that's, that's why it's so important that they look stupid because they're the best of the best and Jesus runs circles around the best of the best. But remember, they send their servants, the, uh, they send their servants to John the Baptizer. And they say, who do you think you are? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? <clears throat> are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come? Okay, so they know uh, what they should be looking for. And John is all of a sudden out of the ordinary. And he's, he dresses like Elijah. I want you to all, be, I mean, beat this into your memory. Why does John wear camel fur, wear, uh, live out in the wilderness, eat locusts and wild honey? Why does he do that? Because he's Elijah. And you can always tell when it's John the baptizer in an icon, when you look at you know, the icons of the church, uh, you don't even have to look at the name above him because he's got this wild hair and he sort of has these wild eyes and, it, and he's there and you look at him and you go oh wow that's John the Baptizer and then you look and he's got this nasty brown furry shirt and you say oh yeah that's really John the Baptizer but he's identified as Elijah because Elijah is going to come before the Christ and Elijah is going to come to point to the Christ well they, they ask him, hey, are you Elijah? And what does he say? Well, no. <laughs> he who has ears to hear, let him hear. No, I'm John. I'm not Elijah. Wink, wink. Actually, I am Elijah. I'm just not Elijah. Because what they think is going to happen is that Elijah, did he die or did he not die? No, he didn't. What happened to him? Yeah, he was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, in a flaming chariot. Okay, so Elijah didn't die. God took him up. He was assumed into heaven. So they believed this same guy, flesh and blood, who was assumed into heaven since he never died, he's going to come back down from heaven. Now enter John. Nasty furry shirt, wild hair, in the wilderness, eating bugs. Hey, now wait a second. This guy looks an awful lot like Elijah. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. I'm John. Elijah went up to heaven. He's not coming back down. Why would you think he's coming back down? But I, I am in Elijah's office. And then they send, uh, uh, John is put in prison. They send, he sends messengers to Jesus. And what do they ask? Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Even John didn't understand fully. Are, I, I, all these signs were here. Everything said you were the Messiah. But now I'm in prison, and I'm probably going to die. This isn't what's supposed to happen when the Messiah comes. Are you really the Messiah? And then... Finally, they come to Jesus and they, they talk about, uh, well, Elijah's supposed to come. And he says, Elijah did come. 
and you didn't hear him, and you put him to death. So they know these Old Testament prophecies, and that's Matthew's point. John does the same thing, because remember, John is the son of a priest. That's why John can get into the court of Caiaphas, the high priest, and Peter has to wait outside. But of course, John's gospel is the only one that says Peter had to wait outside, because if you read any of the others, it just says Peter, or, yeah, Peter went into the court of the high priest. But John always has that, yeah, that digger that uh, goes against Peter because he's got a chip on his shoulder, because he's Jesus' cousin. Blood's thicker than water, right? So I should be the head of the church. I should be the one who's your right-hand man, not this weird stranger guy named Peter. Uh, so when he gets to go into the high priest's palace, say, oh, it's John. Hey, come on in, guy. Who's this? Oh, uh, he's with me. Oh, okay, now you can come in. So Peter has to wait outside for John. And John, you read John's gospel, yeah. He makes a big point about saying Peter had, to, Peter had to wait outside, but the disciple whom Jesus loved, he got to go in. Anyway, did you have a question, Bill? Uh, a comment that you were talking about the, the passage, this, uh, Louis NIV, mm-hmm. uh, listen in the, uh, at the bottom here. It says, a few late manuscripts say that, that the word spoken by the prophet might be full, they divided my garments, and so on from Psalm 22. So yeah. it's in the, in the Okay, and it's in the footnote there? Yeah. Good, good. Uh, okay, so anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying Matthew cares about Old Testament prophecies because he's preaching about this Jesus guy who fulfills Old Testament prophecies. Now, why does it matter that Jesus' garments are stripped besides the fact that it fulfills the Old Testament prophecy, that they cast lots for his clothing? Who cares? Why does it matter? Being naked uh, was something that happened pretty regularly. It was a punishment. When you were going to be crucified, uh, you were humiliated. Because crucifixion, public execution, makes an example. That's why it's a public spectacle. Because they want everybody else to see, hey, this guy, you see what he did? Do you want to end up like him? If you don't, don't do what he did. And people see that and say, ooh, no, I definitely don't want to end up like him. I won't pretend to be the king of the Jews. I won't be a thief, okay? So um, they, they not only torture an individual publicly, excuse me, but they also humiliate them. They make a spectacle out of them, they remove their clothes so that they hang there naked, and then everybody comes and laughs at them because they're naked. Uh, so that's historically what does happen. So in that, in that sense, there's really nothing unique about Jesus being stripped of his garments from the historic point of view. But theologically speaking, it is extraordinarily significant. And here's why. I'm even going to draw a diagram if I can remember what I was thinking of this morning. See, these things just come to me. Uh, if you don't believe in the working of the Holy Spirit, my brain should be proof enough. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, okay. This is a great eraser, by the way, and it's magnetized. Look at that. That's so cool. <laughs> it's, it's the simple things in life. Okay, so. Adam is here. 
Christ is here. Okay? Adam. Adam descends into shame in the fall. Adam descends into shame. Adam is created naked. And he is not ashamed. It is the perfection of creation. Adam is the way that God has made him. He, there's no shame. And then there is the fall. And his nakedness becomes shame. Because now he knows evil. He knows that, you know, there's, there's the Bible joke, of course, to know in the biblical sense, you know, when, when somebody knows his wife. You know what that means. It's the biblical sense. Uh, but there's, there's more to it than just marital relations. To know really means uh, to know to the fullest extent. It means that you have a knowledge, uh, an intimate knowledge of a thing or of an individual. So when the devil tempts them by saying, hey, you're going to know good and evil. He doesn't just mean you're going to know that there is a thing called good and there is a thing called evil. You're going to be intimately intertwined. It's not just intellectual knowledge. And that's part of the damage of the fall because pre-fall, they're naked. They know good. They are intimately connected with good. They are known in the fullest sense to one another and God is known fully to them. They know good. They have been created. They have received the gifts of God. They know what good is already. And in the fall, now they intimately know evil. You were conceived and born in sin. You know evil intimately because it's a part of your very flesh and blood. It's part of your DNA. And that's actually something that begins to separate you from the knowledge of good. It's much more difficult for you to know intimately good when you are a sinner. So here's the fall. There's nakedness, and the nakedness is good, but then it becomes shame. I don't want people to know me. I'm going to cover myself up. I don't want people to see me. I don't want people to know me for who I am, because who I am is shameful. I'm going to hide when I sin. I'm going to hide from God when God comes because I'm ashamed of who I am. I don't want him to see me. I'm going to hide from my parents when they come home because maybe if they can't see me, they can't be ashamed of me. Okay? So, here's then what happens. Christ goes from the shame of nakedness back to the purity of creation. So we'll say, I don't know, this is the new creation. After how long were they in the garden before the fall? That's a really great question. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that was anticlimactic. I don't really know. Uh, I don't, it's, it's unclear how long they were in the garden. There's lots of theories about how long they were there. Uh, days, months, years. Um, my personal opinion 
which <laughs> is in no way informed by any degree of research or scholarly thought. It's just me saying, huh, this is what I think. I think it was just even a matter of days. I think it was very fast. Um, so, and because, uh, when does the fall happen? Uh, excuse me, not the fall. The, uh, not the fall of man, the fall of the angels. Satan's, the, the rebellion of the heavenly hosts. When does that happen? See, that's the other question. And my boy, St. Augustine, uh, and I, not just him. Uh, he's just the one that I know and like. But his argument was when God creates the heavens, the heavens includes all of the heavenly bodies, as in angels. Because remember, angels are created. They're not God. They are created just like you are. So he creates... And then he separates light from darkness. And in the separation of light from darkness, Augustine, among many other church fathers, sees the separation of the good angels from the bad. That they rebel very quickly because they realize, hey, God's doing all this stuff. You know, I could, be, I could do that. That's not that hard. I could do that. He's good. Come on. Look how great he has it. Everybody's singing to him. They're bowing down. I kind of want that. I could do that. I could sit in the throne and be worshipped all day. Okay? So there's the rebellion and the separation from good and evil. Now, I, I do believe that that's uh, how it is. Again, that is a little more informed of a, an opinion. But the real answer is, even then, you don't really know. So then fast forward to the fall of man because the fall of the angels happened so quickly, that's then why I, I believe it was even just a matter of days, that everything sort of stumbled. Because here's the other thing. Is man above or below angels on the hierarchy of created beings? You say below. The correct answer is above. What do angels do for you? They bring messages from God. Okay, they bring messages from God. What else? Watch over Okay, they watch over you. Psalm 91. They guard you lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, they serve you. They are subordinate to you. But only in the sense that they serve God. You are above angels. And, be, and here's another reason why. Dominion over what was given to man? Animals. Not just animals. Creation. Dominion over the creation was given to Adam and Eve. What else are created beings? Angels. Dominion over them. Now, they're subservient to man because they are commanded by God. God sends them to minister to you. God wants them to be subordinate to you. Here's the other thing. Who does God die for? Does he die for man? Does he die for angels? He dies for man. Whose form does God take? Does he come as an angel or does he come as a man? A man. 
He wears your flesh. He doesn't come as an angel. He comes as you. He dies for you. If angels could be jealous of anything, they would be jealous of you because you are the ones for whom Christ died and you are the ones who get to have his body and blood. They glorify God with you and they rejoice, uh, they rejoice for you because you are above them. Uh, so, some of them don't particularly appreciate that this meat bag is in a position that is higher than they are. Uh, which is partly why the rebellion takes place. And then after that, why I think it happens so quickly, because when dominion is given to Adam and Eve in the garden, the angels of God, well, I guess the evil angels say, well, I don't really want to be subordinate to this. <laughs> Am I not wiser than this thing? Am I not more powerful than this thing? I could be God now. I was kicked out of heaven because I wanted to be God, but that's okay because now I've got these things and I could convince them that I could be their God and they could serve me and I could own them instead of God owning them and I could be their God. I could rule them and that's what happens. In the fall, you become subject to the devil. Remember, the order of Jesus' temptations is important because there's an there's an increase in difficulty with each one. The first one is just a temptation of the flesh. Hey, you're really hungry. Well, you're the son of God. There's some rocks. You made all of creation by just talking. I think you can probably turn some rocks into bread. Just have a bite. Just have a bite. Take care of the old body. Okay? That's the first temptation. The second one is a little more difficult because it's spiritual. Hey, okay, you don't want to eat. I get it. You want to be faithful. That's fine. You care about your soul. You care about your spirit. All right. Well, let's see how much you care. Maybe God doesn't really care about you. But he said his angels are going to protect you. So let's try it out. Let's see how spiritual you really are. Let's see if God really is real and if he really does care about you. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, but that's a more difficult temptation. And the third one is the worst of all. All these I'll give to you if you bow down and worship me. Now a lot of people think, oh, that's pretty silly. How does Satan think he's going to give anything to God? <laughs> well, Satan's the prince of this world. This world is subject to him. He is the ruler. He does have the world. But the thing he doesn't have is the power to give it. Uh, so, the temptation is avoid the cross. I've said this before. The temptation is don't die. If that, you just, you want this? Oh, well, heck, I can just give it to you. You don't have to die for that. But the reality is he does have to die for it. If he bows to Satan, then he undoes everything that he has come to do. So anyway, um, there it is. This is the nakedness. So there's a reversal. Always with Jesus, there's reversals. Jesus is the new Adam. The old Adam is covered 
goes from nakedness to shame and covers himself, the new Adam brings about a reversal and a restoration. He is clothed, and in the restoration, his garments are removed. He's bringing creation around again, that good can be known, that there can be this relationship. So that's an important thing about, uh, about that, just in the sense that his garments are stripped. Uh, so, <clears throat> here's a question then. Does the stripping of Jesus remind you of anybody? Think Old Testament. Job. Okay, yeah, great, this is great. Job, he strips his garments. He strips his garments, he sits in ash. That's also a sign of penitence too. When you, penitence, you tear, uh, like when the high priest tears his clothes, or when the king of Nineveh tears his clothes. He removes his clothes, he throws them off, he uncovers himself, and what does he do? He puts on the reality of who he is, sackcloth and ashes. This is who I really am. I am a sinner. I wear sackcloth and I wear ashes because this is my identity. And when you don sackcloth and ashes, what do you do? See, the thing is, it's not about the act of putting on sackcloth and ashes. It's about the nature of the act. So you put on sackcloth and ashes, you strip yourself, and then you pray for in repentance, you ask for forgiveness. It's the nature of the act. That's why in Jeremiah, uh, the Lord says that, uh, he, or he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. It's not about the act of stripping your clothes. It's about the nature of the act. Are you rending your clothes because the law tells you you have to do it? Are you rending your clothes because you think it's expected of you? Or are you rending your clothes because you have a contrite heart? The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Uh, if, I, if, you desired the, if you desired burnt offerings, I would give them, but you don't. Okay, so it's all about repentance. Who else? Yeah, there's a great, there's a great thing about David and Saul. Now let's put that one on hold for just a second, because that's a really big one. And that's good, and I want to talk more about that. But there's at least one small one that I want to hit real quick. Yeah, Joseph! <laughs> that's the one! Joseph! What happens to Joseph? Yeah, they remove his garments, and they throw him into a hole. They throw him into a sister. Yes, and they cover it in blood. Your son is dead. This is just like Abraham. This is just like Abraham and Isaac. Does Abraham have to lose his son? No. Does Jacob have to lose his son? In a roundabout way, no. He's reunited with his son. Does his son die? No, he doesn't. Isaac doesn't die. Joseph doesn't die. But the Son of God does. His garments are removed. His bloody garments are removed. And they're, they're returned. The father sees the bloody garments and he says, my son is dead. And this I know. 
My son has died. Okay? Yeah, so Joseph is great. The, also the uh, being thrown into the pit. He's abandoned. He's cast away. Thrown into the pit. That's, that's a whole other motif throughout Scripture. Being thrown into the pit. Being thrown into the depths. Abandon my soul not, O Lord, into the pit of Sheol. You will not be abandoned by God. Because God has abandoned God. God has forsaken God. So that you might not be forsaken. Okay? Now, David. This is great. I'm so happy. So happy, Bill. First uh, Samuel. <laughs> yeah, we're going to look at First Samuel 19. And this is sort of weird, and I'm going to bet you, unless you're really up to date on reading through your historical books of the Bible, that you may not remember this. Uh, but it's so great. What's the passage you for? Yeah, 1 Samuel 19, 18 through 24. 1 Samuel 19, 18 through 24. Yeah, okay. So let's see a show of hands. Who remembers the story where Saul runs, the king of Israel runs and takes off his clothes and rolls around in the dirt? That's what I thought. <laughs> okay, boy, isn't the Bible great? You never know what you're going to get. Um, yeah, so Saul, the king of Israel, takes off his clothes and he's naked and he prophesies and he rolls around. It's really weird. Um, <laughs> But here's the thing. There's, there's two major things to say about this. The first one is uh, that there's an overarching theme about the switch between David and Saul. As Saul, this isn't the only time where it talks about Saul removing garments, but this is the time when it says that he's naked. So that's why we looked at this one instead of another one. But throughout these accounts... Saul slowly is losing his clothes. <laughs> his garments are slowly coming off. His mantle comes off. His robe comes off. And he, these articles start to come off. And the point of that is that David starts putting on the mantles of king. 
The king starts losing his garments, and David starts gaining garments. And eventually, David is now the king. So there's a switch. One comes naked, essentially, to the one who has it all. And then the one who has it all loses it all, and the one who had nothing gains it all in the stripping of the garments. That's this. That's this. Now, whose lineage is Christ from? David. He's the son of David. He is the king. And this is the best part of this whole deal. Because the king of Israel comes, and look at this, Palm Sunday, what do, they, what do the people do with their garments? They remove their garments and they cast them in, on the ground before the king. And now look at this reversal. The king's garments are removed. And to whom are his garments given? Jesus. To whom are Jesus' garments given? Sure. Let's think broader. He's, yes, to sinners. Well, to you. That's what I was going to say. It's given to you. So, you who have nothing, the king comes to you, and the king is stripped bare, and you don the royal robes of the king. You are the one who is anointed with oil. Your cup overflows. You are the one who goes to the coronation. You are the one who is made to be the king because the king has stripped himself for you. That's big. So with Paul, uh, excuse me, Saul, that's a different, different Saul, King Saul and David, it's sort of a forced reversal. But here... Christ willingly goes. Christ willingly gives up uh, the effects of his kingship. And he willingly distributes them to you. Now the other thing is, the spirit of the Lord comes upon them. There's an anointing. The, the work, God is at work here. And you almost get you know, the picture, hey, this is a holy place. Uh, you know, Moses, remove your sandals. The ground on which you stand is holy. Saul comes into the presence of the Lord and he's stripped bare before the Lord. Now, I, this is, I'm not advocating for you to leave your clothes at the door of the sanctuary before you come in. Please do not do that. Uh, <laughs> hey, this is a theological point that in essence, you are stripped bare though. As Christ is stripped bare, so are you stripped bare and this is what they used to do for baptism, by the way. Oh, it's great. So the early church, you would come naked to baptism. Baptism would take place in this dark room, like an antechamber. And the baptismal fonts were... Uh, I, think I like having this here. Look at this. I can draw. Um, <laughs> so here's an example of sort of the shape of a baptismal font. A lot of them were shaped like this. Some of them were just like this. Okay? But there are stairs. And then there's a pool. 
So what you do is you show up naked or you show up with your clothes into this dark room and the deacons of the church come and they strip you. And then you go down, you walk into the pool and they baptize you. And you walk in, it's one way. You walk in on one side and you walk down into the water and you're baptized and then you walk out the other side and you're dripping wet and they anoint you with oil, sweet smelling chrism, the Christing oil. Messiah and Christ both mean the anointed one. So the chrism oil is the oil of Christ. As Luther says, baptism makes you into little Christs. Think about that. Diminutive. It's so cute. You're all little Christs. Hey, guys. <laughs> Peace of the Lord be with you, okay? Um, so you're all little Christs. You get the oil. And then there's a door here, here. And they come, and right before the doors open, they put this white robe on you. And then the doors open into the sanctuary where all of the light is. And you're, you're going out of the darkness and into the light. And the whole congregation is there. And then you go up, and you have the Eucharist. You have the body and blood of Christ. I mean, now isn't that just beautiful? You're stripped of your old self. And you put on a new garment. A new garment that is Christ. Now, uh, as is the norm, we're running short on time. So, there's another thing that I want to look at. Let's go to John 19.23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. All right. Yep, just that one. <laughs> Why does it matter what he's wearing? Obviously it matters, right? Because if it didn't matter, it wouldn't be recorded. This is one of those great little John uh, bits. This is one reason why John is one of my favorites. Because John, remember, John's the son of a priest. John knows what the temple life is like. He knows the Levitical law. He knows the Old Covenants. Why is it that he feels it necessary to record the fact that Jesus' tunic was woven in one piece? It was one full garment, which none of the other evangelists record. Because the one-piece tunic was a garment worn by none other than, you guessed it, the high priest. The high priest wore the garment of one piece. And Jesus is wearing it. So, what does that mean about Jesus? So how did Jesus acquire that? That's a really good question. Yes, very good question. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've never, I have to confess, I've never thought about where Jesus got that. That's one of, so I'm not going to, this is not to disparage your question. It's woven. It's, it's a woven tunic, and, and it's woven. There are Levitical laws that dictate what the priests have to wear, and that's one of the things. The, the tunic of the priest must be woven in one piece. So Christ is our high priest. Yes, exactly. The book of Hebrews is all about that. It's all about Christ as the high priest. Christ enters into the holy place. He goes into the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifice. That's what the priest does. 
And the priest does what else with the blood of the sacrifice? Yeah, sprinkles it, puts it on the people. Which is why it's such a big deal that the crowd says, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Now what's the context of that statement? I don't, I don't want blood guiltiness. Think back to the verse of the week. I don't, I don't want blood guiltiness. I don't want his blood on me. Because if his blood is on me, then that means I'm guilty. Cain is guilty for the killing of his brother. That blood is on him. I don't want that blood on me. Now, I'm not saying Pilate said that about Cain, but that's the attitude. If when the blood is on me, it means I'm the one that's held accountable. I'm the one that's guilty for it. I don't want it. And they say, let his blood be upon us and upon our children, in the sense that, yeah, we'll take the guilt of it. We'll be the ones responsible for it. You just make the sentence. We'll take care of it. So what? Yeah, so what? But the underlying reality of the statement is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> yes! Okay, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Yes, because that's the lamb of the sacrifice. Let his blood be upon us. Martin Luther's great Easter hymn, Christ lag in Todesbanden. I don't know, I can't translate it, I just know that that's the German name. But it's Christ lay in death strong bands. Bum, 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 bum. Which, by the way, tangent, this is a musical note. That is the old Easter chant. The victime pascali laudes. Praise the Lamb. Okay. Uh, and he took the chant, which is a little more lengthy, a little more uh, fluid, and he boiled it down to a few notes and then made a hymn out of it. So it's the same text, or the same tune as the old chant from the, I don't know, second century. And then put this text here. And we have the Victime Pascali Laudas in the hymnal as well. So, I mean, if you're interested, you can sort of compare uh, the direction of the music. And you can see that it's the same thing, just a little bit simplified. But anyway, see his blood now marks our door. Faith points to it, death passes o'er, and Satan cannot harm us. Hallelujah. Oops. Okay. Um, so that's it. That's the blood of the Passover. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. The doorposts of your heart are marked with the blood of this Passover lamb, the final Passover lamb, who is himself both victim and priest. He's the sacrifice, and he's the one who's offering the sacrifice. And the blood is on your hearts. Receive the sign of the cross, both upon your forehead and upon your heart. Baptism. And death passes over. It's a Passover lamb. Yeah, okay. Let his blood be upon us. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Now, this is what I was going to say to you, Marla. I, you're, I don't want to disparage your question, because I think it's a good question. And uh, I'm sorry that I don't have a real satisfactory answer. But it does remind me, my grandmother, uh, she's a wonderful lady. I love her to death. She knows all the right buttons to push uh, to irritate people. <laughs> and uh, some of my buttons are bright and red, and they sit on the outside, and they say, please push me. <laughs> 
And uh, so she has this question that she always asks me. She says, what about Mrs. Noah? Who cleaned up the ark? What did Mrs. Noah do on the ark? How did they feed those animals? Did she go around mucking out animal stalls? <laughs> and she asks that question all the time, and it's one that I have. I don't, I don't know. Who thinks of Mrs. Noah? Here I am, <laughs> baptism, flood, judgment, salvation, the number eight, eight souls, the ark, the boat, the church, and then what about Mrs. Noah? <laughs> oh, man. I have no idea. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just saying, you both ask questions that I would never in a million years think to ask. They keep me humble because I have to say, I don't know. <laughs> okay. So here's the other thing about clothing then, and, and we'll close with this point. Um, especially in the ancient world, clothing was an indicator of societal status and identity. To a degree, we still sort of have that mindset. Look at me. Who am I? What do I do? You know that. Uh, just based on how I look. Here's, this is a great story. I went to see a lady. Her memory is not so good. And you know, I, always, I wear my collar, and when I go to do visits, I wear my cassock, the long black. And um, so I showed up, and I'd met her a couple times, but every time I meet her, it's the first time. And I knocked on the door, and she said, come on in. So I walked into her room, and she said, Well, who are you? And I said, I'm your pastor. And she said, well, I obviously, I knew you were my pastor by the way you were dressed. I meant, who are you? <laughs> oh. <laughs> but see, that's a good thing. You don't need to know who I am. You don't need to know who the man is underneath here. But, but this, the dress, tells you who I am to you. I am a pastor. You're, you're, the, so the dress identifies these things. You can identify occupations, you, you can identify societal status. You know, when you're in high school, you know who the cool kids are, right? Because the cool kids are the ones with all the real nice clothes. Supposedly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's in the garments that you can tell who somebody is. How do you know who the high priest is? He's the guy way up there with all of that stuff on him and the big breastplate of gold and the hat. You know who the priest is because he's dressed like it. But here's Christ. Who's that? How do you know who Christ is? You don't know who he is by how he looks and how he dresses. That's the thing. You know who he is in the stripping. When he strips himself, or when he is stripped down. That's when you know who he is. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's a reversal. How do you know who Adam is? By looking at him. He's the one who God created. But after that, now he's wearing skins, now he's covering himself, now clothing starts to be this societal indicator. And then comes Christ. He's nothing to behold. There's no comeliness or form in him that he should be adored. He wasn't one of the cool kids. 
And then he's stripped bare. And on the cross, that's his throne. He bears the title, the King of the Jews, which is meant as mockery, but which confesses a truth and a reality. He wears upon his head a crown of thorns, which is meant as torment, again as mockery, but it also confesses the reality of who he is. Who is your God? Your God is Christ Jesus, the man stripped bare, the man who came to you naked, the man who hangs upon his cross and there inherits his throne. His garments are removed that you might wear them. In your baptism, you put on Christ. There's a great, I love this, um, this text from 1 Corinthians. And um, St. Paul says that you, uh, you groan. We, we groan, Christians in this world, we groan. We wear our garments and we groan. But we do not groan that our garments might be removed, but that more might be put on. That the garments of Christ might be put upon us. We groan because we long for the clothes that Christ has that he has removed from himself, from himself uh, and that he puts upon us. This great high priest of ours who enters the holy place for us. This lamb who is the sacrifice who does make your sins go scarlet to be as white as wool. So there's, there's a lot in here uh, about garments. There's, there's a lot of meaning in the fact that Jesus is stripped. You see this. So, any questions then here? Marla? No. <laughs> okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to look and see. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm 0 for 2 today with you. I'm sorry. Um, I'll see if I can do some digging and come back to you. We don't, we don't have class next week, obviously, because next week's Easter. There's two services on Easter. There's the one at uh, 6.30, the sunrise service, and the one at 10.30. They're different services. They're different services, different hymns, different readings, different sermons. So, hey, come run the full gamut with us. <laughs> we'll have a good time. We'll even give you breakfast in between. You can get a break. And you don't have to sit at my table with me. You can get a break from me, too. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, I'll see you in church. <laughs> <laughs>